Amen. Amen. And, and just on that note, uh, next Wednesday night, the team from Uganda is going to come up here and, and share about the, the mission trip that they are on right now. So hopefully you'll come back and you'll hear the excitement about what the Lord has been doing in them and through them while they're in Uganda. All right. Well, tonight we're going to continue our study of uh, our survey of the Bible tonight. And we're going to be looking at Nehemiah. Uh, we're going to pick it up in chapter 4. We saw last time that Nehemiah was a, a man who was genuinely sensitive to the Lord and uh, a man who lived in humility. Although he was a great leader and, and the Lord used him for great things, uh, he was a man who lived in humility and, and he was also a man who displayed many leadership qualities that uh, we should try to emulate today. Uh, if, if the Lord uses you in some leadership capacity, the, the traits that you see in him are things that you would want to have as a part of your life. And uh, he, he lived with the motto of doing all that you do in order to bring, bring glory to the Lord. And uh, it's so essential in leadership. The, the tendency is to try to bring everybody's attention to us. That's man's natural experience. We want people to notice us. We want them to think that we're cool. And so we usually, by uh, our natural course, try to draw attention to self. But a, a spiritual leader, a true leader, is somebody who wants to glorify God and not himself. And Nehemiah was that kind of man. And I, I appreciate this quality in him. It's a great reminder that the Lord can do great things through anyone who doesn't want to share in his glory. And if if that's the course you take and, and you want the accolades of men, the attention of men, then God will park you and he'll sit you on the shelf. He doesn't need us to do anything. It's a privilege that God asks us or calls us to be a part of his his work. And, and so, um, you know, with, with this quality in Nehemiah, God could use him for great things because he was allowing God to be glorified. And, and so we, we saw people joining in in the work. Uh, we saw that whole list of names in chapter three, uh, that are so easy to pronounce. Uh, they didn't name any of their kids Bob or Sue. Uh, so it's just one of those exercises in futility to try to get the names right. Uh, but what we were able to see in, in going through all those names and groups of people is that they had teamwork, and teamwork was paying off in the rebuilding effort. And even though uh, they were aware of the enemy and the potential of an attack, they continued uh, to do the work that was needed. And we're going to see that again in chapter 4 and uh, be able to learn some things from that and uh, just to see their posture and how they position themselves in in the face of the enemy even while continuing the work. And and so we also saw that they they worked to repair even the, the refuse gate. And, and this... This was a reminder to us that sometimes ministry just stinks because the refuse gate was where they brought all the trash and all the smelly stuff. And, and so it wasn't a pleasant place to work. And, and sometimes you just get dirty. And sometimes 
uh, you, you just have to wear what you're doing in ministry and uh, and we can't be afraid to jump in the muck and mire of life's issues. And as long as uh, we know where our strength comes from, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we can face anything in his power and his might. And and so sometimes ministry has has an odor to it. You get dirty. But if the Lord is glorified, it's well worth it when you get to the end and when when you see the results. And uh, you'll never regret what the Lord does through you as long as you're yielding your life to Him. And even in those not-so-pleasant times, the end result is, is God will be glorified and you won't regret whenever God is glorified through your life. And and so it shows us the need for believers to work together and accomplish the work of the Lord. We we know that it pleased God to see the people working together and 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 unity, and we're going to see that again in this chapter, working with one heart and mind. And 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 so God puts us into places and conditions that that there's a need for us to work together. There's a need for us to partner in the work in order to get it accomplished. And uh, so some will lead and others will follow, but we can work together to accomplish what the Lord is calling us to. So Nehemiah was an effective leader, and because he was willing to let people, you know, try things and, and you know, stretch in, in their abilities. We, we saw that the goldsmiths, the priests, the perfumers, they were all doing construction work. They were doing things that were outside of their comfort zone and outside of their normal ability, and the work was getting done. And, and sometimes God does that with us. He'll, he'll bring us in to do something that we're not naturally gifted at, and then he'll show us his glory through what's being done. And and so the results of the, the work we're going to see in the next chapter. So let's pick it up in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. It's just like our enemy. When, when we're doing what the Lord has called us to do, he gets furious and indignant with us. And, and mocks us. In verse 2, he goes on, And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even... If even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And and so we see this tag team of adversaries back at it again. We met these guys earlier. And, and uh, you know, the, the British author Thomas Carlyle said this about ridicule. He said, it's the language of the devil to ridicule. There are people who can stand in the face of being shot at, in war, in battle, yet they may break down when they're laughed at or ridiculed. They, they have that, that internal fortitude to stand in battle, but somebody says something about them and they crumble. 
that ridicule tears down right to the soul of men. So it's a tool that the enemy uses for sure. And, and so Sambalat and Tobiah begin this work of the enemy by hurling these words of discouragement and sarcasm at Nehemiah and his people there. So check out the response of God's people. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders." And, and so Nehemiah and the people, they, they take this to the Lord. That's what they should have done. When, when the enemy came against them, began to ridicule them, they go right to the Lord and bring the grievance to the Lord. And, and I know that, you know, we can, we can look in the scripture and we can see that, that we have power over the enemy in, in the Lord's strength. We have power to come against the enemy and to stand and to not be knocked off course. We, we can find those verses and we can, we can stand on those verses. However, I always want to keep the Lord between me and the enemy. I, I always want, I, I've met people that, that they get so uh, arrogant in their own Christian walk that they're choosing the devil on in a fight. Realize this, the devil's been around a long time. He's really good at what he does. And he's probably come up against people as smart as you before. And, and so it's not a good idea to just kind of choose them on and say, take your best shot. You always want to keep the Lord between you and him. And that's, that's what they do. The, the ridicule comes from their enemy and they, they go right to the Lord with it. And they, they offer the grievance up to him in prayer. In verse 6, it says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And so the threat and attack of their enemy was enough to give them a determination to even work harder on the project. I mean, it, it was at that place where the wall was half built, and, and they, they sensed this, uh, this attack coming from Sambalat and Tobiah, and and instead of turning and and stopping the work, it drove them even deeper into their commitment to get this project done, to get this work done. And you know, so so many times we want to give up when the pressure comes, and we just want to throw in the towel and say, you know what, I can't handle this anymore. I quit. And, and these folks said, no way, we're, we're, we're determined to work even harder now. We're going we're gonna to finish what the Lord has asked us to do. We're going to complete this project. And, um, you know, God answered their prayer by, by giving them a mind to work. I love that. The Lord gave them a mind to work, that, that he, he even put that desire in them to press, press ahead and, and not to be held back by the discouraging words that were being thrown out, the, the words that were being spoken against them, and instead of cowering down to those and, and giving up, it, it gave them a mind to even work that much harder. May the Lord, in fact, give us that same mind. 
You know, when discouragement comes, when the pressure starts to mount and you start to sense that, you know, there's, there's an adversary that's coming against you instead of cowering down to him and, and retreating and kind of sitting on the bench for a while, may it give us a mind to do that much more with the Lord's help, of course, but that much more to accomplish his work and be about his business. In verse 7 it says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Now check that out. They were going to attack so that they could create confusion. The enemy sees uh, what, what they think is a chink in the armor of the people there in Jerusalem, and um, these, these gaps still existed, but they're, but they're closing. But there were some gaps there. And, and they thought, you know what? We, we see this, this weak area, this vulnerability, and this, this is where we're going to come against them. And they devised this plan to attack at this point of weakness. You know, this is a a characteristic that our enemy still uses today. He's still looking for those areas of weakness, those areas that that we would uh, probably be more vulnerable to his attack. And, And so he examines us and he looks for those chinks in our armor And he looks for that place where he can have the most effect if he comes against us in some way. This this is why it's so incumbent upon us as a believer to regularly, and you'll have to determine how often that is in your life, but regularly to survey our life and and to kind of lay it out before the Lord and say, Lord, Are there any areas that I'm vulnerable right now? Are there any areas that you need to address in me that would subject me to an attack of the enemy where where I could cave, where I could actually get taken off course and and maybe hindered in the work that you want me to do? And and so we we have to be honest at those times. That's a hard thing to do. I mean, we, we don't like to be that vulnerable before the Lord. Uh, because chances are he will speak to us about something that he wants to address in our life. But but it's so necessary because, uh, like I said, Satan's been doing this a long time. Our enemy, our adversary, knows how people react and, and knows how to study people. And and so if, if there's a, a place that we're vulnerable, he's going to know about it. And he, he's not going to hit you in the areas that you're strong. He's going to hit you in those areas where there's a chance that he can have victory over you. And, and so we have to do that, that personal survey. We have to take the time to say, Lord, examine me. Run, run through my life and show me those areas that I'm weak. Show me those areas that I need to shore up in my faith and in my walk with you. And, and if you honestly do that, I will guarantee you the Lord will show you. You may not like what he shows you, but he will show you and he will direct you to those things 
that need to be addressed. And um, so uh, now that the Lord was uh, making them aware uh, of the weakness, they, they see that um, th this would be a good time to strengthen it. So the same would be for you and I. If, if the Lord is showing you something, when you, when you honestly say, Lord, is there something in me that you want to deal with? If he shows you, then deal with it. Don't put it off. Don't wait another week or month or year or 10 years before you address it. I mean, if, if it's there and, and you recognize it, take care of it. And again, here's their response, verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and, and because of them we set watch against them day and night. They continued in prayer. There's a reminder over and over and over in Scripture for us to pray and to spend time with the Lord in prayer. And, and we see the importance of that time after time after time in the Scripture and, and how, how this lifestyle of prayer and, and being connected to the Lord and spending time communicating with the Lord keeps us from the discouragement and defeat the enemy wants to bring against us. It's those personal times with God. You see, prayer, I, I still think, is one of the most underused tools in the Christian's arsenal. I, I think all of us, if we're honest, could say, I wish I spent more time in prayer. I know I do, and, and I spend time in prayer, but I, I always think about how great it would be if I could spend more time in prayer and, and more time communing with the Lord and, and conversing with the Lord and listening to the Lord. I mean, it, it's just a, a strength. It's an anchor to our Christianity. And so they prayed and then they put it to action. They set watch day and night. They weren't going to be surprised by the enemy's attack. They were going to be diligent to watch. Verse 10, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. You know, they're, they're at the halfway point of, of rebuilding this. The wall is halfway done. And, you know, whenever you're project is halfway done that's that's a dangerous place to be because much still remains i mean you still have quite a bit to do if you're only halfway done but fatigue has usually begun to set in and and you're tired and and you've been at it and you've given a lot you know you've you've kind of pressed through some adversity already and and then you're just kind of looking and thinking man i still got all this to do and and you can really get mentally defeated at that point. Th these broken down walls had become a collecting place for rubbish, and so um, th they weren't just building; they were clearing and building at the same time. I mean, they were they were doing a lot of work. And and it, again, it, it shows us that you know if we equate that to to ministry life, it, it can be messy. At the same time, you're trying to go forward and, and build in the kingdom of God. And, and so, uh, you know, there, there are things that, 
that can distract you and, and kind of consume you. But you have to still keep pressing forward and building. And I remember a few years back we had uh, Debbie Wynn coming around here and she was a homeless lady and and she was struggling and, and she consumed a lot of our time. I mean, we spent a lot of time ministering to her. And, you know, there were times when it was like, all right, you know, let's let's minister to her, let's take care of her, let's do what we got to do. And 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 sometimes it, it almost seemed like a distraction, but we still had plenty we had to do at the same time. But now we get to look back and see the fruit of that. I mean, she's sober, she's doing well, she's got her mind back, and, you know, it, it was worth doing both at the same time and pressing through. And, and sometimes it's like that. You got to clean things up and continue the work that you're called to do. And, and so... Uh, their faith was failing. They were getting discouraged. Discouragement, uh, again, is one of those key weapons of the enemy that he uses. Uh, remember, it was discouragement that, that Israel struggled with when they were in the wilderness, and, and it kept them from entering the promised land. They, they heard the discouraging report of the spies that went into the land. And, and instead of being encouraged to walk in and take the land that God had promised them, those, those discouraging words are what kept them defeated. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died up. And they missed out on the blessing. Discouragement's a powerful tool of the enemy. So listen to what they say next. Verse 11. And our adversaries said, they will neither know or see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. So Nehemiah knew that the enemy was casting a plan to win the mind of the people. Now check out his strategy for battle. Verse 13, therefore I position men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. What a... What a great picture for us to see. Doesn't matter how the enemy rears his ugly head. Doesn't matter what threat he brings against us. The Lord is on our side. And Nehemiah knew that. And, and he was trying to bring the people's mind back into that understanding that, you know, yeah, the enemy is, is plotting against us, but the Lord is on our side. The Lord is great and he's awesome. He'll fight for you. He'll fight for me. And, and so because of that, now we can stand and we can battle and we can do what is necessary to get the work done. Remember when David came up against Goliath, said, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. I come to you in his name and his power, his authority knowing that he would fight for me. What a, what a comfort it is to be able to know this and rest in it 
when things look like we're going to be overtaken. Verse 15, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And so it was from that time on, half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind the, all the house of Judah and those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand, They worked at construction with the other hand. They held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So so once they they saw the defenses of the people, the enemy kind of shrunk back. They they didn't want a battle because they knew they would lose. And I love this. Each, Each builder had a trowel in one hand in which to build, in the other hand, they carried a sword in which to defend himself. Charles Spurgeon once published a magazine called The The Sword and the Trowel. I would have loved to subscribe to that magazine. I imagine that was filled with so much information to help us walk through this Christian life and to be able to stand with a sword and and defend, but keep a trowel and keep working for the Lord at the same time. And, and so these these two uh, instruments should be in the hands of believers today. You know, we should be working in in whatever calling the Lord has put on our life, and and yet not so arrogant that we wouldn't keep our sword nearby to be able to uh, stand in defense when the enemy comes always mindful that there's an enemy that wants to tear down the work that God is doing through us. And so that sword would be the Word of God, your most defensive weapon, the trowel, whatever calling the Lord has called upon your life. Both tools are essential. Verse 19, And then I said to the nobles, the rulers, the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from another, one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we labored in the work, and half the men held spears from daybreak and until the stars appeared. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be on guard by night and a working party by day. And so neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except everyone took them off for washing. And and so uh, we end this chapter by seeing that these folks were, were not afraid to put in long hours and to do what the Lord had called them to do. And, and we see that they, they work together. And by uh, working by themselves, they were more vulnerable to attack. And so if, if the enemy were to come, then they would blow the trumpet and they would come alongside their brethren because as a team, as a group, as a multitude, they would be able to stand. And, and so there's this, this sense of, of working together and, and not being the lone ranger out there by yourself. 
say, wow, church, this is a valuable lesson to us today. I mean, we talk a lot about how God has brought the body of Christ together and that we all differ in our gifts and and callings, and yet he, he assembles us in such a way that, that when we stand together, we, we represent his body. We look like his body, Jesus the head, and the body of believers going out and doing the work that Jesus would want us to do. And, and so that there's something about that collective work that makes the work get done in, in better fashion than if, if one person is out there trying to do it by themselves. And hopefully, you know, you're encouraged to get on board with building his kingdom and being a part of whatever it is that God has called you to be a part of. If, if you haven't noticed, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings in the New Testament, we've been dealing with this same subject. Now here in the Old Testament on Wednesdays, we're dealing with this subject. It seems as though maybe the Lord has a word for us that, that he wants us to pull together and to collectively uh, reach more people than we can individually doing our own thing. So let's learn the lesson from the text. You know, first the enemy laughed at the Jews, then he ridiculed them, but finally he was in open opposition against them. It was so intense that Nehemiah uh, had them protecting one another while they're building and and having the trowel and the sword. And, and, and they worked hard and, and long hours and, and worked in such a way that they only stopped to wash and wash their clothes. Now, as we move into the next chapter, we're going to see the opposition changes from external to internal problems. It's sad to see this, but, but where, this is where the devil strikes often to mess up what the Lord wants to get done. Throughout the history of the church, we've seen that, you know, there there were things the devil just couldn't destroy from outside the church, and so he joined the church and started that turmoil from inside that affected the outcome of the ministry. And And he's very good at stirring up trouble among the church family, causing conflict from within. So let's look at it in chapter 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. You know, we we just finished seeing that they stood together against that external trouble, the the threat of attack. They, They came together. They were unified, working in unity. Unity always seems to advance the work of the Lord. However, we we see that unity is broken by this outcry of the people. Another observation to make here is that that because of disunity or strife that that we're we're going to see here, there's no mention that the work even continued. When the turmoil was stirring in their midst, the work stopped. It's safe to say that the work came to a halt because they fell prey to the enemy's trap and allowed this this unrest that was in their midst to become full-blown strife that they were contending with between them. And so this, this outcry 
went out and it meant that one group was pitted against another group. And, and folks, when, when God's people fight one another, they're, they're not fighting the real enemy. That person you're contending with is not your enemy. There's another enemy that's orchestrating it. That's the real enemy. He, he's the one that, that wants to see you in conflict with other believers. It, it never ends well when strife breaks out. The work halts, lives are being impacted for the kingdom of God, and then it stops. And they're no longer impacting lives for God's kingdom. Now you may be thinking, well, okay, pastor, but what happens when I'm the recipient and somebody comes against me? I mean, how do I, how do I handle it when somebody is coming at me with something? Well, Paul had some interesting advice to the Corinthian believers. And and I think it's applicable in a lot in a, in a lot broader sense than then he wrote it in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 he was dealing with the subject of Christians suing other Christians and having an open conflict in a public court and and Paul was he was rebuking the Corinthians and he was saying that you know you you should have people within the fellowship that can judge your disputes you don't need to go in front of a heathen court and let them decide if if you go before the heathens then you've already lost even if you win you lose because it defames the name of the lord but this is one of the statements that that i think just needs to be highlighted in our mind that paul said to the corinthians in first corinthians 6 verse 7 he said now therefore it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? And, and so Paul's making a really bold statement there. He, he's saying, you know what, if, if you have conflict with another believer, instead of letting it affect the work of God and, and becoming this, this full-blown fight that the public can see, that people outside the church could see two Christians coming at each other. Instead of letting it get to that, he said, why wouldn't it be better for you just to be wronged and say, you know what? I'm wronged <laughs> and I'm going to move on and let it go. Our tendency as a human is to want to get even. We want to we bring as much pain against them as they're bringing against us. That's our, our human nature. And Paul is saying, it's much better for the kingdom of God if we would accept being wronged and just take one for the king. <laughs> take one for Jesus so his name can be lifted up. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you. From him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. 
And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. And so Jesus even draws it in a better picture for us. And he says, you know what? Even if they do things spitefully towards you, love them. Love them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Wow. And so what happens if you come to an impasse and you you accept wrong and it just keeps happening? Well, you have two choices. You can either keep moving forward, not let it affect you, or you can quietly move away from the situation. Quietly is the key. Because if you leave kicking the doors out and yelling somebody's name, then the enemy wins. You, you, you just wasted all of that time you were taking wrong. <laughs> and so you do it quietly. Because we want the Lord to be glorified. Even at our expense, we want the Lord to be glorified. All right, moving along. Here comes the reason for their strife. Verse 2, For there were those who said, We, our sons, our daughters, are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There are those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have seen or have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And so the the people had these grievances and they, they brought them to Nehemiah because the, there basically were some financial issues that were stirring up this contention. Money problems. Now, his, this book of Nehemiah is not primarily about money. It's about building the kingdom. But this, this is something we have to look at. Um, the money problems were directly affected. They were directly affecting the continuing work that, that God had called them to in rebuilding the walls. Because there was contention over money, it stopped the work. The frustration uh, was having a negative effect on the unity that they had just experienced when that external enemy came at them. And so what were they, what were they dealing with? Well, first we see they, they spent so much time working on rebuilding that they couldn't provide grain for their families. And, and sometimes there, there's an out of balance in our time away in service and it affects our home life. We have to find that balance. Secondly, we read here that there was a famine in the land and the famine was no fault of the families working on the wall. This was something totally outside their control. You know, sometimes the, the financial problems we deal with are not self-inflicted. Sometimes it's just, you know, you live in a country where they have a $20 trillion deficit 
and it affects things. I mean, economies get messed up and people's lives get affected by that and people lose jobs or houses get foreclosed on and, and things just happen that are kind of out of their control. Thirdly, we see the king's tax was part of the money problems. Good thing we don't have a tax problem today, right? But, but sometimes the government brings the problem upon the people and, and so they, they borrowed money, and, and in borrowing money to pay the king's tax, in their culture and their system, if they couldn't pay the debt, their family would get sold into slavery and pay until the debt could be paid off. And, and so they had all this going on. The loans were, were causing this, this problem, and it was creating this strife that completely disrupted the work of the Lord. Now, if Nehemiah and his people didn't find a way to do what God wanted them to do with their money and their money problems, the work of God would have stayed hindered. It would have been completely stopped without a single arrow being shot from the enemy. The work would have been stopped. You see, the enemy came inside and stirred it up and had just as great of an effect as if the armies came from the outside. You know, we sometimes separate, we want to separate what we do with our money from our walk with God. You know, it's pure deception. You know, how how we handle our the resources that God entrusts to us really is a statement about our, our walk with Him. And, and so we, we want God to govern what we do with what He's entrusted to us. Keeps our heart right. You know, buying a house is a spiritual decision. It's not a, just a financial decision. It, 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 it should include the Lord in that decision. Getting a new job. That, that should be something you seek the Lord about first and get direction from Him. It's a spiritual decision. We want, we want Him to be involved in all the matters of our life because it directly affects how we live out our Christian life. So a godly view of money is necessary to keep us from being steered off course. And, and so we want to put those biblical practice and disciplines into our life right away. And if, if you're already a seasoned Christian and you've never done it, now would be the time to look to the Word of God. Get your instruction from Him and do it His way. You'll never regret doing it God's way. In verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Now, Nehemiah became angry because these money problems were caused in part by the greed of some of the nobles and and uh, the high muckety-mucks in the society. And, and it was against the Lord's instruction to the children of Israel. Back in Exodus 22, verse 25, it says, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. And they were extracting interest so much that it was causing them to have to put their children into slavery. And so that's why this friction was, was happening. They were being disobedient to the Lord. And, and so what was Nehemiah's response? Verse 7. 
after serious thought, it's another great leadership trait, by the way. He was angry, but he didn't get in the flesh. He took time to reason out what was in front of him and to really think it through. I'm sure he prayed, consulted the Lord, and and was wise enough to think about his reaction. And he says, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, according to your ability, we have... <clears throat> According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Isn't that what happens when somebody's confronted with themselves, (laughs) with truth? (laughs) They're just like, uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's what we're doing. Uh, Then I said, "What what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and grain and new wine and oil, that you have charged them. And so now he he challenges them for violating God's law and charging interest or usury uh, for their brethren. And in other words, he's saying, you know what, don't don't just feel bad about doing this. I want you to make it right. I want you to give the money back to them. I don't want you just to to hear the rebuke and say, oh, you know what, I feel really bad for what I've done but then not give them back what you've extracted from them. And and so he, he wants them to take the right course, that there would be a visible change in their action. You know, that's what true repentance is, right? When When you're confronted with sin, it isn't just to feel bad that you got caught at what you're doing and, and say, oh, okay, the gig's up, I won't do it anymore. No, repentance means to turn and go the other direction. It means to make it right and and to right what was wrong. And, and so there's a change of action. In verse 12, he continues, So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would not that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property and uh, who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. So, So this is, the response Nehemiah had hoped for when he confronted them with their sin, he was hoping that they would repent, that they would actually respond to what he was saying. And and a true change came about. The nobles are now willing to restore what they had taken from the people. And, and again, that's that's the sign of true repentance. That means they actually are responding to the correction that was being brought to them. 
It's a different choice than before. Now it's evident that, that these who had been confronted with the truth were truly changed. In verse 14, Moreover, from the, the time I was appointed to be the, their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall uh, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for work. And and so he shows another point of, of true leadership here in his own testimony about what has happened. Um, he he didn't take advantage of his position as governor. He, he was willing to work right alongside of them and to to be a part of what was happening, not just be the, the you know, superior and high and lifted up one. He got right down and worked with them. And he, he had the right to tax people, but he didn't, he didn't use that right. And so this, I think, kept him from making destructive decisions. He didn't let the power or the authority get to him. And, and he was able to make wise decisions. In verse 17, And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was uh, one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me. And once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of all this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. And, and so he, he was generous with his own resources in, in ministering to the needs of the people without bringing that which would bring a heavy load on the people. He recognized the bondage that the people had experienced under the other governors and what they had done. And we'll end with this, verse 19. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. And, and you know, this, this is a, another leadership trait that I think is admirable, is that he, he looks to the Lord. He, he doesn't want the people to idolize him. He just wants the Lord to see his heart in this and, and to see that he was doing this for the Lord. And, and uh, you know, it, it was the Lord and he, he knew the Lord was working through him. Uh, as we saw in prior chapters, he, he lived in humility and recognized that everything that took place that was good in him was because God worked in him and, and was empowering him. And and so he he never loses sight of the fact that God does great things. You know, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 126, verse 2 and 3, he said, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. And they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. It's the Lord. 
ever lose sight of that. If anything is good happening through you or in you, it's because the Lord is good. He is gracious. Remember Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, verse 49, for he is mighty who has done great things for me. You know, we, we, as people sometimes try to idolize Mary, and Mary was saying, it's the Lord and his greatness. He's done great things for me. May we recognize his greatness in our lives and continue to give him praise with, with gladness in our hearts. This attitude takes our mind off of us and it puts it where it needs to be. The, the, the natural outflow of that when our eyes are on Him is unity. It's unity. It's being able to continue to do what He's called us to do and to be effective at reaching people for the kingdom of God. And that that's what our life is supposed to be about, to fix our eyes on Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, the author, the finisher of our faith. And as we look to him, it draws us together and we can accomplish great things in him, working side by side, plowing straight ahead. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we surrender to you. Lord, there's so much here that, that goes against our nature. We tend to cower when the enemy comes against us from outside, when we need to stand and have a trowel in one hand and continue the work and have our sword in the other hand for defense. Lord, help us to continue pressing through adversity. And Lord, when that adversity starts to come from the inside, may we handle this with your grace and selflessness in mind. Lord, may we not try to make a reputation for ourselves, but to build your kingdom. And Lord, I, I pray that as we set our sights on you, Lord, that you would draw us together. Lord, those of us in this church that, that are called to work alongside of one another, to forge ahead for your kingdom's sake, Lord, may you do great things in us and through us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.